Today's reading from Isaiah was written to a group of people who felt stuck. In 587 BC, the Jewish kingdom of Judah was sacked by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was decimated, the temple burned. Many of their citizens were deported to far off Babylon, where they were kept in captivity. Years went by, people died, people were born, generations passed, and eventually it all started to feel normal, predictable, maybe even comfortable. They knew their stories about God, the one who brought them out of Egypt, the one who, as Isaiah puts it in today's reading, made a path in the waters and extinguished evil like a wick. But they're not in Egypt anymore. They're in Babylon. And the God who liberated them in the past isn't going to be able to do a lot for them now. So get used to it. Get comfortable. Drop dead. And were it not for the prophet Isaiah, that's likely how things would have stayed. But Isaiah bursts on the scene with a startling message from God. Isaiah declares that God says, Behold, I am about to do a new thing. The God you worship, Isaiah declares, is not simply the God of your ancestors. That God is also the God of your descendants. God is still active. God is still involved. God is still doing new things. So get ready. What Isaiah promises is nothing short of a new exodus. That just as God made a way through the sea out of Egypt, God is going to make a way through the desert out of Babylon. An event so upending, so striking, that this is my favorite part of today's reading. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. You could just stop the reading there and have that be the end of it. A nice uplifting story for a Sunday morning. But then Isaiah takes it a step further. Do not remember the former things, the prophet advises, or consider the things of old. What does Isaiah mean by that? That seems to contradict a whole bunch of stuff that God says in the Hebrew Bible. The Jewish people are constantly being told to remember their escape from Egypt. There's an entire day of the week, the Sabbath, that's set aside to remind you that God brought you out of Egypt. And when God speaks in the Hebrew Bible, it's usually not just, I am the Lord your God. It's, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't you forget about it. So why does Isaiah say they shouldn't remember the former things? The problem, of course, isn't history itself, but it's what we do with it. We make it a container where we can view God at a safe distance. An interesting idea, a nice tradition, a comforting story. But once we think we've seen what God can do, once our language about God becomes past tense, Isaiah tells us we're really not talking about God anymore. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. It might be intended as good news, but chances are that's not how we hear it. We're not exactly wild about God doing new things. We'd much rather consider the things of old. To relegate God to the realms of history and then cling to that history until our knuckles turn white. But when we relegate God to the past, our entire sense of mission becomes distorted. Instead of being stewards of God's promise, we devolve into being protectors of a tradition. And if our job is to protect a tradition, anything new is going to be a threat. New music, new people, new ideas, new questions. Traditions can only be watered down. They can only be whittled away. They can only be eroded. 
If you are charged with protecting a tradition, then put it in a box, build a mighty fortress, keep it away from anything that might change it. And there in that box, it will be safe and it will be pure and it will shrivel up and die. I recently had a conversation with a lay leader in the synod whose church has a very old sanctuary. During the 1980s, the church wanted to bolster its reputation as an integral part of the community. And instead of reworking how they did outreach or service, they applied for inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places. This would ensure the building would be there for generations to come. But unless you are running the American equivalent of the Duomo or the Sistine Chapel, there is no reason to go on the National Register of Historic Places. Because once you go on the registry, it becomes impossible to change anything. A few decades later, this has become a real problem for them. The sanctuary was built long before things like wheelchair accessible pews and bathrooms were normal. So the church is very difficult to navigate if you're in a wheelchair. The altar is still up against the wall, so the pastor has to preside with their back to the congregation when they preside at communion. And whenever the roof gives out, which it inevitably will, it has to be replaced with the original material, no matter how expensive it is. They have ensured that their building will be there for generations to come, and it is not there as a church, it is there as a museum. Of course, it's not just buildings that we landmark. We landmark programs, we landmark ideas, we landmark traditions. We say that this is the truest version of the church and any departure from that is a sign of decline. At some point, not any point in the foreseeable future, but at some point you're going to have a new pastor. And if you tell her you need to do program X or get involved with Y or spearhead Z because that's what Pastor Joseph did, that's a sign that my time here was a colossal failure. And whatever those programs or ideas are will be failures too. Not because they're inherently bad ideas, I certainly hope they're not, but because you can't follow God into the future if you keep looking over your shoulder at what you've left behind. Why do we hold on to the past so tightly? For most of us, it's fear. It could be the fear of loss. We want something in life to feel permanent when everything else is slipping away. As long as you hold on to this one thing, the loss doesn't feel real. Or it's fear of being irrelevant. One of the pastoral counseling conversations I have most often is with people who had kids and did everything with those kids the church asked them to. Sunday school, confirmation, youth group, and now their kids are grown up and they don't see a lot of value in the whole thing. And now their parents feel hurt or confused or out of touch. Or it's fear of change. We have lots of churches in our denomination that said what they wanted more than anything in the world was new members. And they got new members. And they were all Hispanic. And they showed up with their music and their instruments and their language. And for some reason, they're not super into celebrating Oktoberfest every year. <laughs> for some of us, it's even just a fear of mortality. You landmark the building because you want to know you're leaving a legacy after you're gone. You know that you're not going to be around forever, so at least a part of you will. So the new exodus that we need is not out of Egypt or Babylon, but out of our fear. 
And this is where the connection with baptism comes in. This is our last baptism sermon for Lent. Because baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit that binds us together and sends us in mission, is the foundation of our life together. Whenever we get anxious about the future, whenever we feel stuck, whenever we want to hold on to the past at all costs, it's usually because we've forgotten that. Instead of rooting our identity in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that comes from outside of us, we start basing it in our own achievements and plans and skills. How often is the primary message people hear from church not one of grace and forgiveness and diversity and justice, but anxiety? We are anxious about the future. We are anxious about change. We are anxious about diversity, and we think you should be too. But when we root our identity in baptism, something changes. In his large catechism, which was written to teach the faith to incompetent pastors, Luther describes it this way. The Christian life, he writes, is nothing else than a daily baptism, begun once and continuing over and over. In other words, we can never be the church God is calling us to be. We can only become it over and over and over again. We're not a church that's faithful to God's call when we have good programs or effective staff or captivating ideas. We're a church that's faithful to God's call when we remember that we are the ones being led that God is about to do something new. And at its heart, that's really what the message of Holy Week and Easter is all about. When we start our Easter celebrations in two weeks by saying, Alleluia, Christ is risen, what we're really saying is God is about to do a new thing, a new exodus, through the water, through the desert, through fear, through death, and into life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Invite the assembly to stand as we join the church around the world confessing our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty.